the optimal life. Hi, Fatima. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on, Nate. Thank you for being here. So let's go right into it. At two years old, you said you suffer from burns all over your body, or at least covering a portion of your body. I believe you say 25%. What, what, let's go right to it. What happened? Take us back. And, and, and also, how did you know that it happened at that young? Because I imagine at two years old, we don't really, we're not able to remember things. So take us back to how you know it was that age and, and what was happening. Yeah. Well, it really is. The story is because it's been handed down for ages. The same story. You know, you vet the story <laughs> with other people in the family. And so that's the story that's been shared with me <clears throat> basically my entire life. Um, and my brother actually um, carried a lot of guilt um, because of the um, circumstances that surrounded me being burnt. And he always promised that if he ever made a lot of money that he would pay for me to get a skin graft to fix my legs and my feet, primarily my feet. And um, we just, I think, unfortunately, sometimes this happens that tragedy makes you cl um, come closer, become closer. And um, I think our relationship was deepened specifically because of his regret and, and you know, and me just trying to help him to understand that I, there was no ill will that I didn't blame him for an accident. But yeah, at the age of two, um, actually, um, my um, brother was the one that actually made me bath water. He was five. And so he was chosen to turn the water on to start my bath water, um, to start my bath. And um, it, we had a broken water heater. And so it only spouted out hot water. And um, you're going to hear my Alexa in a second, just a minute. <laughs> That's okay. My Alexa actually in um, reminding my kids to eat lunch. <laughs> hey, thank God for Alexa. Yeah. You so, don't even need um, yeah. to be a parent anymore. You get to just have Alexa tell your kids what to do. To tell them what to do. Absolutely. It helps me to not have to scold as much. Um, some uh, <laughs> One of them still does virtual learning. And so it helps me to be able to have an assistant, I would say. <laughs> my very own nanny. Um, but yeah, so with um, my um, my um, accident, it was him that actually um, put the water into the tub and he, he turned on the water and it spouted out all hot water. And then he was the one that put me into the to the bath water. And unfortunately, it just tore up my legs as soon as I got into the water. And when I tried to get out, I was pushed back into the water. Nobody. Um, understood that it was scalding water that was in the tub, and that's why I was trying to jump out. And then once that, once the um, my stepfather and my mom realized that I was rushed to the hospital, and basically um, I was burned one or two degree burns on my legs and my feet, primarily on my feet. Like my feet are completely disfigured, mm. and so it sucks. It sucked growing up that way because. You, um, I found out the cruelty of people at such a young age. Number one, um, I had to learn how to eat, walk, and talk all over again because of the shock, the little bit of talking I could do at that age. We know how toddlers are. And, um, and just at such a young age, being different and learning that you're different and how different you are and just how uncomfortable it makes people. 
and being asked to put on socks um, to make the other to make people feel better, you know. And um, so it just really, really engraved the insecurity in me at such a young age. The, like I grew your up. Brother at five, uh, Fatima, your brother at five years old was he able to understand what he was really doing to you? Um, I doubt it. I right. doubt it. I mean, he thought he was doing a good thing, of course. And and if the water was okay, he would have been. <laughs> right? But you made a comment. You made a comment something about you were able to realize at a young age or what how people how mean or wicked people can be. I think you alluded to. Yeah. Are you talking about your brother? No, not my brother. Just just kids. You know, uh, going kids to school because of your your differences that you had. To yeah, do. kids yeah. and even adults. You know, even growing up and being a, a 10, 11 years old, having adults asking me to cover my feet or even young, young relatives um, saying that I was ugly because of my feet. So, you know, unfortunately, kids say cruel things, um, but never my brother. I think he just carried guilt of seeing that I was in pain and just the aftermath of the decision. Right. So that was just a complete innocent accident. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you had to grow. What's the were you able to walk? Was there a recovery or rehab process? How did that all work? There was. I spent a quite a long time in in the hospital. My mom had to learn to change my bandages and um, she really helped out a lot as far as, you know, at home therapy. Um, but, but yeah, I had to learn how to walk all over again. I went into shock. So I also had to learn how to eat all over again to, to start to speak all over again. And so it set me back a little bit. Um, but those are things I don't truly remember. I don't remember going through that. The brain is it's phenomenal in the way that it protects you. Even though I have totally tried throughout my years to try to remember something, I truly don't remember. I just remember being young and my feet aching as a uh, probably five, you know, four or five year old, my feet just throbbing and aching um, like arthritis when it rained or when the weather was bad type of um, feelings going through my my feet and my mom rubbing them and trying to take the pain away, working through those instances. Um, of course, as I aged, those type of pains kind of subsided. So I don't really have that. Um, um, now I just deal with intermittent um, type of um, inflammation that, that will occur in my feet ever so often. But I'm just grateful to be able to walk. So you're at a young age, two two years old, you're barely introduced to the world you're you don't even know that you're really alive at that age you're just doing going through the motions and you have this really traumatic experience is your f- biological father in the picture at this point no my my biological father wasn't around for much of my life actually so um he i, I don't recall him at all in any of those experiences m- none of the experiences in my life not even graduating from high school okay so he wasn't around so your mom is taking care of what was the family situation like just you and your brother yeah so it was me at that time it was me and my brother and so she's taking care of both of us and and not only doing just the basic care of a family member or a kid but now you have to bring in the deformity right? right and just trying to reinforce um my beauty um my esteem it in such a tragic situation so your mom's trying to make it all work on her own. At what point does she, she ends up having, there's, there's different stepfathers that come into your life at a young age, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there was, there was two different 
men that came into the life. What was the, what was the period of time with the first one and then the second one? Yeah, the first one was um, early on. So at, at the age of two, he was very much in my life. He actually, my mom met him actually when she was pregnant with me and he claimed me. And so that goes on a whole uh, another journey as far as him and my father battling it, it out for for me, basically, mm-hmm. um, ownership of me. And so he claimed me when, now, when, when you my say mom he claimed you. I'm me. sorry. Let me just interrupt you. Yeah. When you say he claimed you. Did he truly believe you were his biological daughter or? No, he just decided that I was. He just <laughs> so, decided. Yeah, he just decided because my mom was very, very early in pregnancy when she met him. Okay, and, so and, your mother was already pregnant with you when she yeah. met him. So he knew truly that it wasn't his. He knew. But, he knew. Um, but somewhere down the road, he just said, I'm going to be this this child's uh, parent. And he really meant that. Right. <laughs> so, and, and he, and he, had, he had all good intentions, correct? Absolutely. A, okay. Absolutely. So, so um, it just turned life. a little crazy. He just turned a little crazy. What What do you mean by that? What did he do? Well, the situation turned a little uh, crazy as far as when my father did decide that he wanted to step back into the picture of me. And I was still young, you know. Um, I was still, um, from my understanding, newborn, around newborn age when he decided that he wanted to um, take on his responsibility. Um, but by then, um, my stepfather was like, no, you haven't been here. And so I won't allow you to see her. And they actually had fights, scuffles, um, whenever he would come around to try to see me um, for two, a few the years. The two men, the two men, yeah, would the have two fights. men did, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And so it caused um, a huge disruption and chaos. Um, me growing up, I just find it interesting that um, you know my father he wound up just giving up and just saying forget it, and um, and then that just ensued with bad behavior. Um, decisions from there. And he eventually just was never, you know, not a part of my life. My grandparents were, and I would go to see um, my paternal grandparents, but he just was, was never in the picture. These were his parents. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So what's going on with your, what's happening in the, in the household then? How, how long is your mom with this first stepfather of yours? Um, She's with them for a while, at least until I'm like five. And, um, and so, you know, he, he was he was a good stepfather when he wasn't intoxicated and it was the intoxication <clears throat> that really got him being abusive and he would beat my mom and um, beat me and my older brother by then I had two younger siblings and they never felt that wrath it was really me and my older brother it could have been because he knew that we weren't his I'm not sure but whenever he got upset and he felt it was I don't know. It wanted entertainment, I guess, at our expense. Um, he would he would abuse us, but he also beat my mom a lot, and so unfortunately, that's that's also what I grew up seeing. So, did you see a Jekyll and Hyde character at that point in your life? Maybe you were four years old. Was it, it had to be super confusing because at one moment he's fine, and then I assume as the day goes on and it's later in the day, and you turn to the booze and the bottle. You yeah. see a different person. Was it like mornings were okay and nights were scary? Yeah, for me, it truly was. When I think of my memories, those are the more ones that I remember is the abuse factor or the abuse towards my mother factor. And so I do know that there were positive moments, but it's just those negative ones kind of 
um, stick out more. I would say as I grew up and was a teenager and they were not married is when I saw more of the loving side of him. And so it, it helped me to know that that part did exist because he still, you know, was a part of our lives. He just wasn't um, with my mom. And so whenever he came around for my younger brothers, they always claimed me and took me places with them. And, and um, you know, he still claims me to this day as as his daughter. But I was able to see more of the humanist, humanistic side of him when he wasn't with my mom. When he was with her, it was a lot of just pain. Yeah, that's wild. And I'm I so know. sorry you had to endure that at such a young <laughs> yeah. age, uh, four years old, five years old. Yeah. Give us an example, if you don't mind, just going back into your memory. And what when you say abuse, was it just shoving? Was it, was it yeah. hitting? What, what was it? For her, it was, um, you know, punching and, and black eyes. For us, it was tying us up to chairs and, and um, whipping us, you know, tied to chairs. Oh my so, um, yeah, it could get, that's, that was normal to me, which is unfortunate, I, but that was normal to me. You were a four-year-old girl. Yeah. And he would tie you up to a chair with what? With a belt? Yeah. With a rope? Yeah, with whatever he had. And, and he would um, whip you with the belt? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And how long would this occur for? Um, it's hard to, to remember because it's so long ago, but, but that is a memory that, you know, I've held on to forever. Oh my God. And your, and your mother's got walking around with black eyes on a Absolutely. On this continuous base. Absolutely. And you guys as young kids, and especially you, you must think that this is just life. Like, yeah. How do you so know you think it's different. Right. You, it's normal. That's my normal, you know. Pain is my normal, and family, love, where you you putting those words together, those equate to pain for me. How can it not? You know, one is an accident, and and of course it was it was accidental. Everybody knows that, but that was still pain from my perspective. And then having um, growing up or continuing in a, well being in a domestic horrible situation, it's like that's normal to me. So your mom gets out of it you're five years old and then she ends up meeting another guy. Yeah. And this was around that? 11. I was, uh, she, she met him around when I was like 10 or 11 years old. So, so, so let me was, just ask you for team. Yeah. So for five years, it was just back to you, your brother and your mom again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and my and two younger brothers. Oh, and your two younger brothers. So now it's your mom with, with four siblings. Was that five year period between five and 10, uh, a little more calm for you? Uh, it was, but we were broke. <laughs> you were broke, right? So it was. So it was always stress. It was stress. always. But your right. mother wasn't abusive to you to that like that. I, I think she did the best that she can. With, she could with what she had. Um, right. She was a very frustrated single mother, mm. and so there were, um, you know, there was discipline. We had that old school discipline of, um, of of whipping steel, um, very direct. I think she, of course, she loved us and gave us hugs and, and things of that sort. But there was more, uh, I think, tough love that was shown when we we needed a softer touch. So it's yeah, not to say I, well, that she was unintentionally um, rough on us, but to some degree, I think she was because she had all boys and then me, you know, and, well, and knowing that of, she had. Go ahead. I'm sorry. The stresses of life. Yeah for a single stresses of life for even any parent people that are financially free even let alone yeah. somebody that's struggling to meet ends meet and has four little kids 
and trying to do it all on her own. And she's been an abuse victim for probably a long time herself. Uh, that's got to be such a uh, difficult is not the right word. Right. I mean, it's your survival. mother was just trying to survive, keep her yep. head above water every single day. Yeah. Absolutely. It's survival. I think the mindset is survival. I've been a single mother before, wasn't as long. And so I, I, I've, I've been able to tap into that feeling of I'm just trying to survive. And so um, and that's what I believe my mom um, parented us from. She that's where she lived. Shoot. You know, so it wasn't a lot of um, emotional comfort. Um, I would say, and I don't think that it was intentional. I just think it was every day I'm trying to lift my head up, go to work, trying to figure out where we're going to get the next meal from. And now you're sad. And now you're upset about something, you know, fix your face. Right. right. <laughs> you, know? you, you ungrateful bitch, basically. Right. Right? Basically, basically, you know, basically you guys are a bunch of ungrateful kids. Right. right. And and I really believe a lot of the parenting came from that space, whether it was uh, merited or not. Okay, so, uh, wow. So five challenging years, of course. Your mom trying to keep her head above water. You're still trying to figure out who you are, uh, the, the feet, the whole thing. You came out of a, your first five years with some really traumatic experiences. You're 10, 11 years old, and she brings a new man into your lives. What happens from there with this guy? Yeah, and so she, she brought in um, an, a new man. They got married. Um, I think it was it was pretty much an elope situation because I don't even remember being at the wedding. And so we met him. He was actually in the military. And so we were able to uh, move out of a underprivileged neighborhood and 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 definitely get the feel of kind of like a middle class life experience, something we had never experienced before and not having to wonder where food was coming from and, and just any of those struggles that we had become so familiar with. But the um, I guess the byproduct, the consequence of that was um, him molesting me. And so he molested me for um, at, at, at least a year, year and a half of them being married. And um, and it came to a point where I decided that I needed to tell my, my mom, you know, it got to a point where I knew that this was wrong and that I was scared for her to um, to stay with him any longer. And so I shared that news. And unfortunately, she was actually in night school. So when she would leave to go to school or he would pick arguments with her for her to leave the house in anger. And when she would leave, those would be opportunities for him to for him to molest me. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. So do you remember when you say molest and, you know, share with what, whatever you're comfortable sharing. I, I know that yeah. you've, you're an open book and, and you're, you're sharing your story and all that kind of stuff. When you say molest, I mean, what, uh, to what level are we talking about? Yeah. So he would definitely come into my room and, and fondle me, um, even, you know, just um, sexual actions um, that I won't go too descriptive in, but, um, but definitely, definitely um, put, putting me in a, a very uncomfortable situation at such a young age. And, and I would just pretend like I would be asleep um, so that it would be done quickly. And, um, and then the next day, honestly, it would be like as if nothing happened. And I lived in that space. It wasn't, um, it wasn't any communication. It wasn't, don't tell your parent. It wasn't, um, you know, it's our little secret. There was never any conversation. It was as if he thought in his head that he he was doing it while I was asleep. And so that I wouldn't remember it in the morning. 
type of mindset. Yeah. So he's he, this. So this is happening when you're 11 or 12 years old. Yeah. And this yeah, is going I, on for a full year plus until you say yeah. something. Yep. Absolutely. So I would. Uh, it was actually 10, 11, and so at 11 years old um, is when I decided to speak up. And so and that's how old when was I, this man at the time? Shoot, he had to be about in his 30s. I don't know. 30s. Mid 30s. Yeah. Molesting a 10 year old. Yeah. Uh, his his wife's daughter. You and know, and he unfortunately, this, he would do this while you're. Were there times where he would do it when you're awake and just well, push you against the wall, or um, it would it would be all you know on my mattress, and it was you know seemingly while I was asleep. I never pretended that I you know was was woke. I tried to you know continue to pretend like I was asleep, but I was woke. Right, of course. No, I was, yeah, I was definitely woke. And you're scared. What, what's the feeling at that age when this is happening to you? I, I mean. Well, to take us back. Do you remember the fear? Do you remember the anxiety? What was yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would imagine that it's just like it would be for anybody, you know, to this day, regardless of what age, definitely violation, fear, disbelief, you know, you like in this surreal space and um, truly, truly just you feel dirty. And how do you, how do you comprehend that as a child? And that was tough. Like, how do you comprehend that feeling? It's hard to understand that if you've been a rape victim, right? And you have a certain level of intellect. So as a child, that was difficult to even comprehend truly. But I did understand that it was wrong. And I understood it, I believe, when I saw we were in the living room one one time watching TV and um, the news showed a man who had been arrested for molesting a child and he got so irate and he was so loud in the in the living room speaking about how it was horrible what a horrible thing this person should be killed and at that moment I saw that um, hypocrisy and it just it made me sick to my stomach and um, and that could have even been when I felt the permission to speak because I recognized that it wasn't just me that fit that felt it was wrong but it was on the news and this person was arrested for this behavior. And then you see and, this man being a complete uh, yeah. narcissist, like a hypocrite sociopath uh, going crazy about it. And you're going, wait yeah. a second, this guy is, this is completely psychopathy. I mean, this is, yeah. this is it was crazy. Right. Right. From my age perspective, I was just sitting there very quiet. I, I never, we didn't grow up in a space and time where, your opinion mattered for much. <laughs> so you, you know, you did what you were told to do. You didn't really give much feedback in anything. So I was a very quiet child. And so, but I was thinking like, wow, you know, that was a real huge pivotal moment for me. And you say, and the thing is, is that you say that it took you 30 some odd years to really understand the repercussions and how yeah. devastating it was to your psyche, to your emotional well-being, to your mental health. I mean, that what was happening to you, not only from your first five years, but then at this age to compounding, uh, it, how do you even, when you're a teenager going into your teenage years and then into your late teens, early 20s, uh, what was relationships like for you? Were, were men scary to you? What was going on? Yeah. Um, and I, I felt very uncomfortable around men. Um, I have brothers, so it was different as far as like around my age level. You know, I still had that teenage experience of crushing on boys and things of that sort. But I was very um, 
protected, like protecting my person. And I would say that my mom was very vigilant about that. She was very vigilant about um, moving forward in regards to how I operate with men. You know, what the clothes that I should wear around if a man comes to the house, even if it's my uncle, things of that sort. I think she was trying to um, be very over, almost uh, overcorrecting of how to engage with, with males moving forward, even with my brothers. Um, but there's a whole story in that that I talk about in the book that it, al- it almost seems like an oxymoron in, in response to how um, some of the events transpired when um, I did tell her about the abuse. But growing up in that space, I definitely wanted to be like every other teenage girl, right? But I didn't have much of role models for me as men. So for um, when I saw um, a girl with her with her dad, and if she sat on her dad's lap or if she kissed her dad, for me that was a no. For me that was wrong. Like you don't, girls don't do that, right? In my head, I took that as sexual, and that is a no go, and, well, and it your, was just wrong. Let me just ask you, Fatima, in your mind, when you were seeing that specific act, a girl with her father, you were thinking, "Oh, I know what's going on in their house behind closed doors." Right. 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 And and that, honestly, as an adult, like I carried that mindset as an adult. I struggled with that as an adult. And so meaning intellectually, I knew that that was okay. But I guess emotionally, I never really had that experience. I never had experienced that type of intimacy with a man who was supposed to be a father, a father figure in a healthy way. So I often, when I would see that played out, even as an adult, I would instantly, it would tug at that feeling inside of me, that emotional space that hadn't been healed inside of me. And then intellectually, my mind would have to say, no, Fatima, this is healthy placement. Wow. Yeah. So let me ask you on that topic right there. How do you then, when you start realizing it and you're starting to try to work through it, what are some things yeah. that you're that you're doing for yourself to start working through those triggers or yeah. those those counterintuitive feelings and going, oh, wait a second. No, this is okay. What are some of the things that you were doing to get past that? Yeah, definitely therapy. Therapy was, I didn't realize that therapy was important because we had never talked about it in my community. We never talked about it in my home. It was never introduced to me as an option, any of those things. And when I went to therapy, it appeared to be completely unrelated. But in going to therapy and being consistent in therapy and being able to have a safe place where I can have those type of conversations that would, to me, make me feel embarrassed if I talked about it with a friend or just some random people at a dinner party and them looking at me like, what's wrong with you? That's how you think, you know? (laughs) So you don't bring that type of stuff up because you may be the only person in the room that thinks that way and because your your experiences in life are different. So having a safe place to have those type of conversations and work through those thoughts was pivotal, like huge for me so that I can be able to talk it through and decipher between what is healthy and what is not healthy. Um, and and um, honestly, my spiritual growth was huge for me to be able to have a fixture, even if it was spiritual, to say, this is what um, a spiritual father looks like. And this is for me um, as being a faith-filled 
um, person who believes in God. This is what God um, has created man to be like. And so trying to focus my attention on finding those type of people to be in my life and excluding um, the opposite out of my life so that around me, I'm surrounded with healthy um, people and having more healthy experiences, which will in turn reshape my mindset, right? And so those are things that I had to aggressively seek after. And that meant truly, truly working to remove myself from toxic situations because I'm sure you can see the writing on the wall, Nate, that I was, I wound up being in an abusive relationship. I wound up being in a relationship where um, I, I, I didn't know what, how to get love, but I needed the feeling of feeling love because I had never really experienced that from a man. So as soon as I felt like a man was giving me that type of feeling, affection, um, sexually, verbally, emotionally, I would gravitate to them and it would be so traumatic for them to walk out of my life. You know, huge abandonment issues in regards to that and staying in a relationship way longer than I needed to because that's what was mirrored to me and because I didn't have a healthy view because my dad wasn't that person to give me that healthy view or any other man wasn't there in my life that came in that could give me a healthy view of what relationships should look like. How long was the second stepfather in your life for? Oh, a very well, <laughs> a trick question there, Nate. <laughs> so um, originally, uh, he after um, I told my mom he he was indicted um, and he went to jail. He went to jail. I think he got a three year sentence, but he only served one. And then he was actually allowed back into my life twice after that. So he came back into my life uh, when I was, uh, I, my mom probably was his ride from the jail. I really believe that. Um, and so he came back into my life around like 12, 12 and a half, 13. He came back into my life and stayed um, for some months. But to me, that was like a lifetime. Well, and when he stayed then, for some months, he was back to doing the same shit again, correct? He, he, he was not, he was but not. just the okay. fear, but just the fear of him being able to do that. And there were definite moments where he was standing at my doorway wow. and, and, but didn't enter. And he's going, do I want to do this and risk going back to prison or do I not? And he's fighting the right. devil. Right, 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 right. So just me being in that situation was just incredibly wrong. But by your and, early teenage years, when he was finally gone, what, what? Um, um, I was at the age of 18. He, oh, he was allowed back again. Yep. Oh my God! The that age of eighteen, like he came back. The longest seven years of your life, in and out. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, and just thinking, I never know when he'll come back, right? right. Because he leaves. Um, they didn't divorce, um, and then and then he's allowed to come back. It's just the the fact that that door never closed. You must still have dreams sometimes where this people creep back into your mm -hmm. life, where these. Do you have like those anxiety dreams uh, of mm. this type of stuff where you feel like somebody's going to come and come back in or those kind of things? I don't have in regards to the sexual abuse and maybe because it was such a huge fa factor um, in my life that I, I think I had to uh, resolve it in some way over years and over years. But when I finally was able to have a conversation with my mom 30 something years later, 
it was a different type of conversation. It wasn't me as a victim coming to my mom at 11 saying this man hurt me. It was me as a woman saying this should not have been allowed. He should not have been allowed to come back into my life these multiple times. I was in a different space and I had to be to have that type of conversation. I think I believe having that conversation helped break something inside of me that was holding me hostage to that to that part of my life. So I don't have any type of um, PTSD um, in regards to that. Um, but other areas in my life, I do in regards to just overall abandonment um, and just truly having to consistently work on the feeling of men come in my life and leave, you know, because there hasn't really been any that have stayed, you know, granted, I've been married, I've been with the same person for 13 years, but I still, I still struggle with that thinking. And again, that's why I'm in therapy and I continue to work on myself. But those are things that were embedded in me as a child and that I have seen play out over and over again. And my own father not being in my life and wondering what did I do wrong, right, as a kid. And so having that instinctual feeling of having to constantly prove myself in a relationship with a male for them to stay around. So you mentioned earlier a little bit ago that once you started getting into these relationships in your adult life, yeah, you were basically a stage five clinger, for lack of a better term, right? Like I'm holding. <laughs> I on mean, to this. dang, Nate, at least say four. <laughs> stage four. All right, stage four clinger. Yeah. Um, but you're holding on to this person's coattails because you need that male figure. You need that security blanket, yeah. even though most often you're still going right back into that loop that you experienced your whole life. You were going, you were gravitating towards men that were, did you feel like, hey, if this man doesn't abuse me, he doesn't love me? Oh, you hit it on the nail. You hit it on the nail. And these are the type of things that people don't say or women don't like to admit. Okay, and, and I'm gonna say women, women, because I'm a woman. But even maybe if if even I would even say anybody that's been abused. So even if it's a male and he's been he's grown up that way and he's seen it, and he, then he wound up in a relationship with a woman that is secretly beating him. Seriously, it becomes a part of your relationship expectation. Uh, it becomes a form of love to you because that's how you have reasoned it, reasoned it with yourself. And so in my case. It was reasoned with me as a child that 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 is what love looked like, even with my mom. Right. That discipline and things of that was 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 love. And to some degree, I believe you spare the rod, you spoil the child. I do believe that biblical text to a degree within context. OK, that doesn't mean beatings. <laughs> OK, um, it means discipline to me. And so, but I'm just saying growing up in that space, that's what I saw in an environment where love and where family is and family is supposed to mean love. And so subliminally I'm seeing hitting in that fashion, abuse, not just pop, not just a pop on the butt, but abuse. And then I wound up with a, in a relationship where I felt that the person loved me more than anything. They stood up against my family on my behalf and and was there for me in some critical moments of my life. And it's it's like I married my, um, you know, like a hero complex. You know, I married my hero. And and in that, when he became abuse, abusive, that was a conflict for me. It was like, how do I leave? I know that this is wrong. I saw my mom go through it. I don't, I didn't, I never thought I would go through it, but he's my hero too. 
And so how do I, I mean, there's got to be a reason. I must not be doing something right. Or this, this is him just showing me how much he loves me. And I'm reasoning that with myself. So then when I finally get to a place where I say, I may not have the biggest confidence in myself, but I know I don't want this anymore. And I leave and I start those baby steps to making better decisions for my life. And I meet someone who does not put their hands on me. I feel like he doesn't love me. He's rejected me. What's wrong with me? He must not feel that passion for me like my ex did because he hasn't even gotten angry enough to even lift his hand up. I mean, he may not execute, but at least lift your hand up, right? I mean, from a sick perspective, that's what I was thinking. And so it really took me having to do some deep dive, facing myself in the mirror, looking at my dirt and saying, girl, you got some stinking thinking and facing that crap to be able to say that is not even a good way to think. And I was I was bringing hardship on my relationship without even knowing it. You said something that really struck me. You said that you started thinking to yourself, what am I? What am I, Fatima, not doing right since this man is beating the crap out of me? It's not yeah. what is he doing wrong, which would be everything in that regard. But what am I as the victim not doing right? Yeah. It's well, a, think about I, it. I assume that that's a really, really, really common. Thing yeah. But think about it. Because when you grow up in an abusive relationship, I'm just speaking on that level because I'm, I'm sure it still lies there. If you had a healthy relationship, but then you wound up with somebody that you felt loved you more than anything, and then they turn their hand up against you, that would be a shocker too, right? What happened? What just happened? Why, why did that just happen? But as a kid growing up in a space like that, you learn to be the diffuser. You learn to walk on eggshells. You learn to be codependent, to do whatever that person wants you to do so that you can alleviate a beating, right? Maybe you'll make it that day without getting hit. And so naturally my thinking would be throughout my entire life, what can I do in any situation in my home to make it a calmer space? Because there's so much chaos around, we just looking for calm moments. And so I take that same mindset all that is, it's the same mindset. I'm just an adult now. And so I take that same mindset into a relationship. What can I do to diffuse this situation? And so in inevitably, I become an enabler to, to horrible behavior on somebody that, that somebody else is responsible for. And I become codependent because I'm bending over backwards to do whatever they want me to do just so that they will be happy. But in all of those two situations, I'm miserable. You went right back into that exactly who your mom was you were yeah. in like that exact same place yeah yeah and, and then you ultimately did you have a child with this first man I did I did. did I did and that was one I think that was a pivotal moment for me um, but it wasn't right away it was when he was around two or three when I began to see how it was impacting him and what I mean by that is we're having an argument shouting back and forth and I would see my son not knowing who to go to. So he would be in the middle, almost like going in a circle because he didn't know who to go to. And I saw the stress on his face and that would break me. And so that's when I started saying, I don't wanna raise my child like that. Like I don't wanna raise my child in an environment like this, but how do I even leave? And so from there, very, very small steps, you know, it did not happen overnight. I wish that it would have, but my own 
um, lack of self-worth caused a huge delay in me being able to actually say I'm leaving and then doing it. So it took some years before I think I left when he was four. So it took a couple years for me to be able to start to put things in place financially um, to give me the encouragement that I will be able to make it by myself. Playing Monday morning quarterback for someone that's listening that may be in a similar position that you were in. Would you wish you would have done it differently? What kind of advice would you give somebody that's in that position now? I would truly say that if you see the signs that this person is, there's something wrong, the way that they handle arguments, they're yelling, they're shouting, they raise their hand, they lightly push you or nudge you, um, they lightly kick you, you know, all in fun, quote, fun type of situations, but you didn't like the way it felt to listen to it because I promise you, I got a pink flag. I'll say a pink flag, not a red one, a pink one before my wedding. And I nudged it off and I said, it's just wedding jitters. And I wish that I would have listened to that flag. I wish I would have paid attention because I wouldn't have been in that situation. And, um, and we just have to love ourselves more. We have to love ourselves more. So I would strongly say, if nothing more, ask yourself this question. If you don't love yourself, what makes you think that somebody's going to love you more than you love yourself? Mm. At least work on that before you dive into a heavy, hot and heavy relationship. At least work on yourself first to loving yourself more because just in me working in my, on myself, I began to see flags and now I'm making better decisions because I love myself incredibly more than I did at that time. You saw pink flags, red flags, whatever you want to call them. And yeah. it's amazing if you listen to it, 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 one inch leads to two, two inches leads to four. Yeah. Then it's a foot, then it's a yard. Next thing you know, this isn't a light tap. This is this is major abuse. Yeah. But it starts, slow, starts small and it starts innocently, like you said, right? Yeah. It starts off, listen to that. That's extremely yeah. powerful. And isolation, I got to nudge that in there, isolation. If you see that they're starting to isolate you from your friends, um, starting arguments or being an instigator in in family dynamic to where your family is now not talking to you or you're being put in a position to make a decision, them or your family, that is a key component in abuse is isolating you from your family. My family could not stand him. And I was like, you, I'm too, you have to love him or I can't be when you're, you know, I can't see you guys anymore. And I chose him because I loved him and I thought they didn't understand. So I wound up in the end of it when I was ready to leave, I had nobody to go to. Right. My family was gone. Of course they would have helped me, but I felt like I had nobody to go to. It's easier for the abuser to get away with his abuse if the yeah. person he's abusing doesn't have a support system around them. And Absolutely. That's, just, that's, that's what it is. So you had one child with him. And then how many kids have did you have total? Yeah, I, have, I actually have four boys. They are 22, 15, 11, and 8. Yeah, I don't know. Whoa. The first two I kept saying I'm done and then <laughs> I had a I had a finale and an encore. But um I actually had a daughter. I, um my very first child was a was a, a baby girl. Um and she uh, passed away actually 5 hours after giving birth. And so that was another horrible um tragedy that I experienced. And um 
and I'm so grateful for her life. I'm grateful for the for the experience. I'm grateful to be stamped her mother and that I can say that. Um, but it was a very, very difficult moment to crawl through. Wow. Was this with the same man that you had your first son with? It was. And, and there was nothing that he did to cause um, any complications. It's just my body, you know, had its complications. Um, and so, I mean, we could, uh, there were times where I've thought about, did it have to do with me being molested at a young age? And maybe that's why I had complications. That's something I'll never be able to know for certain, but I do think I have thought that. Uh, um, but um, yeah, I, ha I had complications um, with my cervix and was, wasn't able to carry children without, without help. And so I didn't know that until it was too late. And unfortunately, um, she did pass away. I'm just curious, did the, after that time, it had to be a tremendously sad time, of course, another traumatic event for you and your husband, I take it. Yeah. Did his abuse subside at all or did it intensify after the loss of that child? Yeah, it subsided and um, for, for a while. And it wasn't even, um, which I'm not trying to um, minimize it, um, uh, not in any way. There, there wasn't everyday abuse. It was random stuff. So you never knew what, what you could do to set them off. You never knew. And the reality was, it wasn't me. It was just him not being able to handle himself. Mm -hmm. But they were such random moments to where every time you thought everything was great and you're moving on in a positive direction, it would just be a disagreement that would just flare up into this craziness and you're just dealing with the Jekyll and Hyde. And, and so it really had, you know, me in the relationship truly feeling like, well, what did I say wrong this time? Trying to remember it, uh, logging it down or something <laughs> so that the next time, because you don't know when it's going to happen, that hopefully you'll remember, you know, and it was just really crazy. But when, when we did lose our daughter, um, there was a moment where um, it felt like we were connected even more, you know, because of the loss. And, um, and then um, shortly after, some months after, about four months after, I'd say I got pregnant with my son. And, and so even through that process, you know, he was, he was helpful and considerate, um, never did anything in regards to that, but he just was uncontrollable with his anger. And, and he knew that he had an anger issue. He just refused to, to do anything with it outside of beating me. So back to the second, your second husband, the one you're with currently for 13 years, um, you mentioned that at the beginning, you thought the guy didn't even have a, a pulse, basically, because he wasn't raising <laughs> his hand to you. Yes. Yeah. So how do you, at that point in your life, ultimately not only get this man to really fall in love with you, because I'm sure you're like not giving him your all because you're not, you're confused. Yeah. How, how were you able to overcome the fact that this man's not abusive with, not that he doesn't love me, but oh my right. God, this is how it's supposed to be. Right, right. That was a huge transformational moment for me. And um, it was hard. It was tough. So first and foremost, I always felt like up to that point, I had lived my life feeling when is the next shoe going to drop? Right. What's the catch? And Nate, I've got to tell you, he's good looking. So I definitely was like, what's the catch? <laughs> like, I mean, now, I mean, I'm, you know, I am cute, but I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, he was just one of those types that I just thought, you know, I always get the average guy. You know? And he was just drop dead to me. I just really, really thought he was a handsome guy. And so when he 
was interested in me, I truly, my self-worth was so low. I was really like, what's the catch? What is it that he want, really? And um, and he stayed around. And then I was like, what's wrong with him <laughs> for staying around? Like, what's wrong with him? Like, seriously. Um, but there was a moment when we we really, you know, we were dating pretty, pretty lengthy amount of time. And um, probably about a good six months we were dating. And he, we met, we had got into an argument and we met um, for lunch. And he pulled me over and basically was telling me that we were breaking up because he just couldn't do this type of fighting. Like the way that we we argued was just so nothing he was used to. And I was used to shouting. I was used to having to scream to make my point. I was used to chaos in my home that I didn't know any other way. And so when, when there would be something that maybe could have been talked through, or maybe we both need to just take a break from each other, I would want to pound it and scream. And, and then I would think the relationship was over. So I would go through all these emotions about now the relationship is over. And he's just like, who is this psychopath? <laughs> and so he, he was like, I can't do this. And it was in that moment that I said, I got to change because I knew enough that he was a good man and I didn't necessarily, I can't say that I necessarily did it for me because I recognized that what I was doing was a horrible habit and I needed to fix it. It wasn't introspective. It was, this is a good man. And I recognize that he's a good man and I don't want to lose him because I'm screwing it up. And so I had to be honest. I think that was one of the first honest moments we really had in our relationship, conversations of, I don't know how to do this. I don't how know how to do this type of relationship. I was about 33, 34. So 33 or 34 years to yeah. finally meet a man. Yeah. 34 years to meet a man that was treating you the way that you were supposed to always be treated from day Yes. And I was kicking him away. And I was like, no. And it was different. And it was uncomfortable. It was so uncomfortable. And it was everything that I needed in my life but didn't know how to accept. And that's this is sad. making me get choked up. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm a daughter. I'm a daughter of three girls. Okay. Or a, a, a father, father of yeah. three girls. Um, look, I can't even think think clearly because I'm <laughs> thinking about what what, uh, yeah. what you know, putting them in that situation. I just it, it's so yeah. it's incredible with what you've gone through. It took you that long in your life, yeah, to finally bring in a, a healthy a healthy man into your life. And yeah. uh, I'm so happy that you recognized it. I mean, yeah, most I'm women, grateful. And you talk about yeah. this, right? Fatima, this is part of your message. You talk, most yeah. women would have completely ruined that thing and moved right back into the old. Yeah. And that's because I do believe, you know, because I felt this and that's why I believe it. I can't be the only one that feels this is that number one, it's easier to do our bad habits, to keep our bad habits. And we know how to mitigate them. They've been with us forever. And so we know how to work around. We know our workarounds with our bad habits. The people that love us know our bad habits. Everybody's used to them, right? Whether they're good, whether they like them or not, they're used to them. And so why mess with it? And it takes so much effort to change a bad habit and to do better by ourselves. And it, it doesn't feel good. Sometimes it's real, real hard. Why put yourself through that? You just prefer to just say, this is who I am. But the reality is, is I was doing such a huge disservice to myself. Um, I feel so much more alive. I, I, I care for myself. I love myself. And I believe because of the work that I've done, 
it's made it to where I'm more lovable, right? I'm more tolerable, you know, and, and people aren't just tolerating me. Like they, they like being around me. And um, I'm not a Debbie Downer and just all these other things that you can say that we say about our friends because here they come. Oh, Lord, I hope they don't give us this again. I hope they don't do that again. I hope they don't embarrass us when they get drunk again. Just all these things. And really, they're masking stuff. And that's what I was doing. I used alcohol. I used arguing. I used my tears. I did emotional manipulation. I used shopping. I did it all to stop from dealing with what was really going on. And it was only, honestly, when I got to a place of desperation where I was ready to end my life, it got, I had to get to that place where I knew I was broken, but I didn't know how to fix myself, number one. So I just kept living like I was living, but it got to a place where I said, I don't even wanna do that anymore. Mm. Till, until I was so desperate that I decided to go and speak to someone and really, really, really engage, in, engage in, my, um, in my spirituality and just kind of start over, just give myself a, a, a pass to start over. And so I started over spiritually and I started over in my relationships and I actually started opening up and went to therapy and allowed people in my life who could help me. And it was all these different things that I did together that helped me to be aware of the brokenness, those broken pieces that was inside of me because all of me was not broken, but there were some key parts, noticing those broken parts and then working on each one, one by one. It was a baby step approach and I did the hard work and it was not easy. I had tough conversations with people. The conversation with my mom, I did not have that until after I went into therapy. And so these were not easy things to do, but they were very worth it. And so I feel more free now. I'm not as codependent now, right? There are so many things that I've done for myself, for my own life to where now, um, um, you know, whether my husband, I love him to death, but whether, whether he stays with me or he doesn't, I'm a better person. You know, I know that I'm not gonna, I know that I'm not um, like I was before, you know, and that means so much to me. That's unbelievable. This is absolutely incredible insight. And you, it reminded me of the saying when you were talking about just constantly running and trying to distract yourself from the, your reality. The saying, wherever you go, there you are. Uh, yeah, they right? come with and you. There's so many people that live like that, Fatima. Yeah. Wherever you go, there you are. Like You have to just be. We're human yeah. beings, not human doings. And so many people, especially ones that are living in a chaotic, unhappy, unstable place, they're doing, they're trying to do, 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 do. Yeah. It's not going to solve anything. Yeah. You have to focus on yourself and find yourself first. I know God and spirituality was a big part of that for you. Yeah. You talk about it in your book. The prescription is in the dirt. We'll link this in the show notes. You say everyone needs a safe place to fall. That's number one. Number two, a victim mentality must change to a victor mindset. And three, it is okay to not be okay, but it is not okay to remain that way. Yeah. Talk about that, please. Absolutely. So number one, I, I think one of the key things I know, one of the key things that helped me when I was really in that space where I wanted to take my life, like I had it planned out. And it was because I had a group of women that I had already established a relationship with. A, such a vulnerable and intimate relationship with these women, they had already walked with me through life struggles and I had walked with them. It was because I already had that established that I was able to share that very honest space. I was able to tell them I'm ready to end my life. I didn't even tell my husband, I told them. And it was because it wasn't that I didn't love my husband. 
it's just I definitely didn't think that he would take that information so well to be able to help me in a in a in a strategic way now what, um, i'm it, sorry just what what age was this at when you wanted to end this your life? was this was in uh for, I'm, I'm 47 now so this was around 43 oh okay wow wow yeah this is yeah. really recently this was yeah this was even many years into your marriage yes it was yes Almost it was and i felt that marriage. i had everything i felt that i had everything you know I, everything that i prayed for and i was like I, throughout so many years i was if i get this i'll feel better if i can do this for my family i'll feel better if i can get this type of relationship this type of money this type of status i'll feel better and all these feelings of depression and anxiety that i've dealt with clearly throughout my entire life you know the reasons why they'll go away and they didn't go away and so I was at that place. And it was because of that, those women, that safe place, them saying to me, Fatima, I think you need to go to talk therapy. It was because I told the right people and I had the right people in my corner that I could listen to them when they told me, you need to go talk to somebody versus me catching an attitude and saying, who are you to tell me? I'm not crazy and blah, 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 right? And not listening to wisdom. Everybody needs a safe place. That can that sometimes isn't your family. Sometimes it's not your parents. Sometimes it's not your spouse. Sometimes it's a really good girlfriend. Sometimes it's a counselor. Sometimes you got to pay for a safe place. But everybody needs a safe place, a place where they're going to keep it real with you, where they have your best interest at heart, where they're they're on the you're on the same team. You two are on the same team or you three or multiple people are on the same team. So a safe place is critical, I think, in anybody's healing journey. And in order to be able to walk through a healing journey, the reality is a victim mentality must change to a victor mindset. And that was tough for me to understand because I had lived in this space of I am who I am because of what happened to me. So you should accept how I am because if these things wouldn't have happened to me, I wouldn't be who I am, right? And so, but I, I played that song throughout my entire life. I never stopped to try to get help. I just said, these things happened to me and this is why I am the way I am. So basically you gotta deal with it. And that's a victim mindset. Yes, I was a victim. Absolutely, I was a victim. There are things that happened to me that should never have happened to me. But that doesn't mean that those things should depict my life. They mm. shouldn't depict my future of what I'm capable of doing. And they definitely shouldn't stop me from success. So I had to make a decision within myself to say, I will allow these horrible things that happened to me, I will allow them to be a platform for my success and not in anger and resentment, but I will use these things that have happened to me as a testimony. And I will speak life, help, um, help, you know, learn to be able to speak life into other people who've gone through similar things. And I will become, you know, everything that I said that I want to become. And I won't allow all the negative things that people have said about me to stop me from doing that. And that's what I mean about turning it in, and having a, vic a victor mindset that has to happen or you will not find growth. It's just not going to happen. Um, and then lastly, you know, I think it's very important to be able to acknowledge that we all got stuff. We all have messes. We all have dirt that we have to work on. It's okay to not be okay. But I don't think that it does a service to anybody to to the greatness that's within us and to anybody that we're attached to, to our legacy, to know that we are messed up and then just decide to leave it that way, to be comfortable being messed up. We owe ourselves enough respect to say, I'm gonna work on myself. It may not happen overnight, 
But if I see this one thing, I recognize this one thing that I need to fix, at least I can work on that. And then maybe I can work on something else and then something else. Or maybe I need to get some help to work on some things. But to see ourselves screwed up and say, oh, well, that's just as good as I'm going to be. That's a disservice to ourselves and it's a disservice to our legacy. Wow. I'm blown away. I'm blown away by your resilience. I'm blown away by your strength, by your message, by your willingness to realize that, hey, it's never too late. Uh, it's never too late to make a change. And now you're doing all these things. And like you said, it's a work in progress. It's a work in process. It's still one step at a time. Oh. Like you mentioned earlier, and I'm sure you're still dealing with it. Absolutely. You may deal with it for the rest of your life, but it's one yeah. step at a time. And uh, it gets better and it gets easier as long as you continue to put in the work. Yeah. Uh, Fatima, we, we talk, we'll link the book. The prescription is in the dirt. Where else do you want people to find you online? Yeah, you can definitely find me on Instagram and Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, I'm definitely there. I would love for you to follow me and and just have some conversations with me. The book can be found anywhere that books are are, are purchased. So that's awesome. <laughs> so yes. I got um, hooked up with a pretty good publishing company. And so I'm so grateful for that. Um, but one of the things I love about it is that my, my enhanced copy, it says it comes with a study guide. It has reflective questions. These are questions that I had to ask myself. Okay. <laughs> so I had to answer myself. So I've added reflective questions and um, with each chapter so that you can read my story and that's great. But for me, it, it my book is not doing its service if you're not being moved to change some things in your own life, right? So there are some questions there that you can ask yourself and be real with yourself and face yourself in the mirror. And the, and the hope, the prayer is that by the end of the journey through my book, that you would have made some breadcrumbs to, um, to healing, you know, for yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll link your social. It's just Fatima Oliver. Is it all one word? Yeah, it's Fatima. Instagram is Fatima Oliver. I believe it's Fatima Oliver 1975. Okay. But I'm pretty we'll sure if you pop in Fatima Oliver, I'll, you'll, you'll find me. <laughs> and on my website, I have a website, actually. It's FatimaC.com, FatimaC.com. And and, and that'll Fatima take you straight the to letter, my social Fatima, site. then the letter C.com. Is that what yep. you're saying? FatimaC.com. C is my middle initial. I do not like you enough, Nate, to tell you what that C stands for. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Hey, listen, uh, a survivor's heart is exactly what you have. Thank you. And uh, thank you for sharing your story today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course, you could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps. Wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend, tell a family member, let them know about the podcast, and we will see you next time.